1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today are professors Matthew Frehley and Joshua Fogo, scholars of early modern East Asian literary and cultural history. Their new edited volume, Sino-Japanese Reflections, Literary and Cultural Interactions Between China and Japan in Early Modernity, was published recently by Duke Ryder, um just last month. Sorry, two months ago. This volume considers the interactions between Japan and China during the early modern time to examine the textual and cultural exchanges that developed and transformed over time. Welcome. Welcome, uh, Joshua and Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for the invitation.
1: So, uh, could you tell us briefly what you research and teach about um, so that we get to know you a bit more. Um, How about we start with uh, you, Matthew?
2: Um, okay. My name is Matthew Fraley. I teach at Brandeis University. My work is mainly in literature from a comparative perspective. I look at Japanese literature, especially of the early modern and modern period. And I'm especially interested in looking at connections between Japanese literature and the literatures of other East Asian Civilization. So I focused a lot of my work on the classic synetic tradition in, in Japan, Kan, kan Shibun and so on.
1: Awesome, and then we'll ask more about that later. How about you, Joshua?
0: I'm a historian. I teach at York University in Toronto, Canada. <clears throat> and I'm interested in the cultural, political, but mostly cultural relations between China and Japan over the last few centuries. Um, so that has involved Chinese views of Japan, Japanese views of China over the, that time, and, and, a, and a variety of topics that attempts to see the history, the modern history, early modern history of China and Japan at the same time. Um, and not to make, very simply put, not to take the, the nation state, which is a, a rather late historical development, and then plot it backwards in time. As if it's always been the way it is now, in in earlier earlier times.
1: Amazing, very fascinating topics. I've personally been very much inspired by both of your works. Um, so this book actually um, is kind of a combination of both of. I mean, of course, uh, a combination of both of your expertise. But I guess this question is best better for uh, Josh because uh, a part of this framework develops on uh, what you previously talked about uh, in your works as the Sinosphere, which is a very important term for understanding the cultural and textual interactions between China and Japan. So can you briefly tell us what is this uh, concept of Sinosphere? What does it cover and how did it form?
0: Well, first I'll start out with an amusing anecdote. Um, I was giving, this was in 2007. I was giving a series of very fancy lectures at Harvard. And um, in the midst of the questions and answers after one of those lectures, I just was trying to think up a term that I could use to bring in the various cultures of East Asia, principally China and Japan, but Korea and Vietnam as well. And I just came up with the term off the top of my head, Sinosphere. Well, the next day, or the the final lecture, which was the next day, uh, one of the people there, I think it was the late Albert Craig, fastened on that term, and he liked it, and he wanted me to to flesh it out, and I hadn't really thought about it very much. I just kind of... But we we have... It's now, whatever, 15 years later, and um, um, I I suppose you can look at it from a variety of uh, different historical um, perspectives, from a cultural perspective, and this is what brings Matthews and my work um, into into uh, communication. We look at cultures that have uh, in East Asia that all used for many many centuries um, very similar languages uh, to write in before the inventions of vernaculars in Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. Everybody wrote in, composed in some very similar languages, um, which are are called a variety of different things. And for many years, we would speak about when the what the Japanese call Kanbun, and we'd say, oh, that's Chinese as written by Japanese, or Chinese as written by. And in over the discussions that Matthew and I and others have had over the last few years, we finally decided not to even fumble with that. And I don't know if it was you, Matthew, or not, but came up with the notion of just Sinitic or literary Sinitic. And that Sino and Sinitic are um, obviously rooted in the same, I don't know, Greco-Roman term somewhere, but at least they somehow removed and it gave it um, a different sense. And that way everybody, even the Chinese would write in literary Sinitic or some form of Sinitic, um, which they could use to communicate with one another and this, this communication went on for many, many more centuries than the modern period when people have now kind of knowledge of that literary language has receded. Um, of course, in Japan, Korea, and Vietnam, but even in China too, of course. Um, and the vernaculars have risen, become languages of culture in a way that they um, hadn't been. So anyway, that's that's fun. basically, I think that would be a... Um, a good place to start from. Would you Would you agree, Matthew? And... I think that
2: one of the one of the values of the term is that it allows a kind of a recognition of a shared cultural tradition and shared textual tradition without reinvoking the name of the modern nation state of China, which can be confusing or perhaps uh, distasteful to people today. And so I think by using a term like Sinitic or Sinosphere, there's a recognition that uh, there's these... T- texts and textual traditions have their roots in in classic china but there's a there's a uh, a distinction that's being uh, indicated there between classical china and the modern nation state so i i i didn't come up with the term uh, synetic uh, victor Mayer and, and others have uh, have uh, used that term but i i think it's a very useful one to get at this uh, the, what what josh was saying earlier about a kind of a shared tradition prior to the conceptualization uh, formulation of the modern nations.
1: Yes, I absolutely agree. It makes it so much more convenient when writing about these. Uh, But now that we're talking about the literary uh, exchanges between China and Japan, for our listeners who might not be so familiar with this part of history, what kinds of interactions did China and Japan have during the early modern time?
2: Um, well, uh, there were uh, many different, one of the, the most important uh, forms of interaction was through texts, the importation of texts, and this is something that Josh has worked on quite a bit, the making the scholarship of Oba Osama more available to people in the English-speaking world. Looking at importation of texts, which was a, a major conduit of cultural interaction, but, But there were also, in addition to the the thriving book trade, the the, uh, tremendous flow of Chinese texts, and not just Chinese texts, also Korean texts in in, uh, literary synodic and so on, into into Japan, there were also uh, Chinese merchants who were based in Nagasaki predominantly, and uh, but also other places in in Japan. And so there were opportunities for more direct interpersonal relations, cultural interactions, as we see discussed in in this collection. Will Hedberg's piece talks about this the the, the Chinese community in in Nagasaki. And in addition to the, the merchants, predominantly merchants who were there and uh, who were the vehicles of uh, the book trade, there were also a number of individuals, Chinese individuals from, you know, who, who came to uh, live in Japan for a variety of reasons. Some were Ming refugees. There were also you know, cultural figures and painters and others religious figures associated especially with the Obaku sect so there were a variety of personal interactions as well in addition to the textual
0: one thing that matthew is assuming here and your readers may your listeners excuse me may not be fully aware is that there were strong laws against Travel between the two countries—that's why it has to be done at the borderlands, you know, in, in one sole city of Nagasaki, or just through one sect of Buddhism. So it wasn't there wasn't easy travel. Uh, um, there, there would become travel at the very end of you know the, the last third of the nineteenth, well, from the middle of the nineteenth century on. But um, there were it, travel was interdicted um, on both sides, China and Japan.
1: Awesome, yeah. Um, that's one of uh, one of my favorite things to uh, read about Japan is the actually the book trade um, from the early modern period. But to dive into the book, so what is the central theme of this volume, and what aspects of literature do the chapters cover? Go for it, Matthew.
0: <laughs>
2: No, that's a, that's a tough one well, I think we were interested in the volume in bringing together recent scholarship people who are working in a variety of different fields within you know broadly literary and cultural interaction in in, uh, in between China and Japan to look at the the various ways in which there were sort of Multi-dimensional forms of interaction here between China and Japan in the early modern period, and one of the things that we wanted to do was challenge the idea of a kind of simple unidimensional reception, passive reception of uh, forms from the continent to to Japan, uh, the, the transmission of cultural forms that are then sort of just passively absorbed. And instead, we wanted to highlight the ways in which there is a complex process of negotiation that takes place where, for example, different images of certain canonical figures might be, might be grappled with or might be used in different ways by Japanese literary figures. Or to take the example of Mari Nagase's chapter, she looks at the, the work of the Semitic poet, Emma Cycle and looks at the ways in which two different currents that both have their origins in the Chinese literary tradition as it it was uh, brought to Japan were in tension with one another and how she uh, negotiated between these these conflicting uh, poles on her on the one hand to write in a certain vein that might seem more feminine, classically feminine, according to certain models, or on the other hand, uh, write in ways that might be truer to her, her daily experience. And so that kind of tension between conflicting pulls and how uh, a Japanese artist or writer negotiated them is one aspect that we wanted to foreground, the, the, that it's not a simple a simple story. And also another, another aspect that we wanted to highlight is I think traditionally there's a view of of the flow of uh, cultural products being unidirectional and so with for example will Hedberg's piece also with Josh's piece there's an effort to look at the ways in which there was it wasn't just that the the Japanese were diligently studying and observing Chinese culture but also uh, the other the other direction as well
1: Fascinating. Now, in all of these uh, exchanges of knowledge of literary works, what are some of the representative, uh, say, Chinese works that were well received in Japan during the early modern time?
0: Well, there are so many Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Where to start? Whatever was transported, I often think of it this way. Um, One of the reasons people are always amazed to discover a single copy of a Chinese text or a Chinese document sitting in a Japanese library right and they and they'll travel all over China or they'll ask around and they can't find the text and there it is sitting in um, usually it's if it's from the early modern period it's in the Naikakubunko this the library that was for the Shokening and they frequently they come to me and they say how can this be or if, or I've asked myself this how can this be and I think it's because, with the book trade, Chinese books take on a almost a, a semi-religious quality when they enter Japan. And so they're treasured. Whereas in China, a book might be read and thrown away or read by 10 people and then worn out. And, and, and whereas in Japan, it would be read first, it would be restricted and then read. And then it might end up in the shogun's library where it will stay for centuries. And uh, so... It, it, and this is, it's not like I'm talking about three or four documents i'm talking about many many such documents that uh, ended up in japan so you know there's it's hard to imagine texts that don't make that if you know for some reason don't make the trip across and in fact certain of the more synthetically knowledgeable daimyo's in certain domains would actually contract with some of the merchants that Matthew was just talking about, Chinese merchants and say, look, on your next trip back in a few years, here's a book list. Could you bring these? Um, this is Matthew mentioned a book that I translated by Obao Samu, a great scholar of this who passed away some years ago. Um, and so they would, it was almost like amazon.com 200 years ago, you know, uh, and it wasn't quite as fast. Um, but uh it was a way of ordering books from china um it's it's that i'm not going to stretch the comparison with amazon too far but it's it, you, you get the idea that i'm talking about
1: indeed um i remember when i was doing a survey in the archives at Kishin university occasionally um a copy of some kind of chinese material would turn up and it was um, it looked quite different, and I would always be amazed by how widely the topics would cover from poetry to sometimes even erotic uh, novels. Um, it was quite uh, funny. <laughs> but uh, I actually want to ask uh, Matthew this. So your chapter um, examines Chinese poetry about reclusion, that infl- reclusion or um, hermitage that influenced Japanese figures who also longed for hermitage. And your pre- previous book has discussed this issue as well, but what was the significance of Chinese reclusion poems to Japanese intellectuals of the 19th century?
2: Yeah, I. I this is... Um... My previous work was, for many, many years, I've been working on Narushima Ryuhoku, the 19th century uh, scholar, poet, journalist, world traveler, and his. Uh, he was very interested in one of the most famous hermetic figures in the Chinese tradition, Tao Yuanming, and often compared himself to Tao Yuanming, and so on. One of the things that interested me in in my earlier work on, on Yuhoku was looking at the ways in which a Japanese intellectual like Yuhoku, uh, he was a, a, Conf- a Confucian tutor to the Tokugawa shoguns, he was able to use the figure of Tao Yanming in a very nuanced way, a very polysemous way. He didn't it, it wasn't simply Tao Ming equals reclusion, or Tao Ming equals dynastic loyalty, or something like that. He was able to tease out and use at different uh, points in his career and in different works various aspects of the figure of Tao Ming. And I, and I, to me, that indicated the ways in which the Synetic literary tradition was a very rich storehouse that Japanese uh, producers of Sinitic texts could use in very subtle and uh, powerful ways. And so the, the example in this, uh, in, in this book, I look at the figure of Yaguchi Kensai, who is actually a friend of Narushima Ryuhoku, and look at the ways in which he depicts reclusion in his poetry. In his case, if you read the later kind of biographical texts about him, there, there are not that many, but the what what few exist, they tend to see his, his example as paradigmatic Tokugawa loyalist, uh, a man who was, when the Tokugawa uh, bakufu came to an end, he vowed that he would not serve the uh, Meiji regime and lived a life of true fidelity as a, as a sort of a vassal of a former dynasty in Ymin. However, if you actually look at his poems over his whole career, you see a much more varied story. And it's not the case that he had that vision of reclusion in his mind from the beginning at all. There are various ideas of reclusion that he has over the course of of, of uh, his poetry collection. And so looking at that variety was, uh, I thought, illustrative of the, the the range of engagements that are possible with the Synetic tradition.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda, must not take yourself too seriously and... That's fascinating. And um, I guess so from the uh, several of the chapters actually deal with poetry. But uh, can you give our listeners a taste of what the other chapters are like? Um, What are the literary practices um, did Japan-China exchange? And I guess also a question that I I would be curious about is um, we've talked about what Josh mentioned, that a lot of these texts that went from China to Japan almost had this... uh, religiously superiority to them and um, I guess in a way it could relate to cultural hierarchy or nation state Okay, I shouldn't mention nation state but I guess uh, if we look at the other way around were there any texts that were introduced from Japan to China and if there were what kind of texts were they
2: um well, I think, uh, Josh, your, uh, your chapter is
0: probably the one that talks about this most directly. Uh, yeah, there are very, very few texts that work that way. There are more Korean texts that, um, for whatever reason, they often thought that the um, Koreans had acquired a better Korean elite we're better at writing Chinese literary, literary Sinitic than other peoples in Asia. I don't know. I, I'm the last person to, to judge such things. Um, but, uh, but, and, and we have Chinese commentaries from much earlier ages on Korean writing um, about the Chinese classics, but they, the, there's very few um, Japanese texts that make their way to China. Some, some, but they're not—they're not that many. The book trade usually was largely one-one directional. Um, can you think of any others, Matthew? Then you know, I—I I, I think very few. Religious texts might, but I don't know. Yeah,
2: um, I think the Azuma Kagami is um, uh, the, the famous example, right? I think you wrote about that, and there are also. Um, There are, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a fair sort of bottom line take home, uh, conclusion to say that it's, it's a, uh, uh, vastly greater flow from, uh, uh, from China to Japan, the from Japan to China. That's definitely true. But it's, I think also, there are a few examples of texts. There's one famous example of a, of a commentary uh, on a Confucian classic that survives in Japan and and is lost in china and then is transmitted back with the japanese scholars introduction to it and then there's a whole debate about uh there's a chapter about this in in one of the books that josh has edited um uh on the sino japanese uh, interaction. So there are examples from uh, Confucian uh, texts that are related to the Confucian uh, academic tradition. And I think one point that uh, you you can kind of get the sense of from, from the attitude with which the scholar that is looking at the Japanese language in the uh, in the chapter that Josh contributes to this volume, that there's a real interest in finding out about uh, the Japanese language and sort of understanding more about Japan. And I think for for me, when I was in graduate school, I would sort of imbibed the the message that it's all a, it's all a one flow, a one unidirectional flow, and there's no interest uh, the other way. And so it was surprising to me when I would encounter. Texts by Chinese intellectuals that showed a real interest in oh look there's this here this this uh, rare poem that's come to us uh, from Japan that's it's we should you know carefully preserve this because it's it's such a, a rare uh, find so I think it's. It's also important to uh, to not assume that there was there was a total lack of interest in the other direction. And so, when you get to the 19th century and you start getting you know, the the famous collections that are uh, produced of Japanese Sinitic texts, you Dongying don Shushuan and is the most famous example. But even before that, there's uh, man has a has another collection um, uh, that appears just before that. You can see a real, a real interest in what's what's sort of what's going on in across the Yellow Sea.
0: There's um, there's also Matthew just touched on this, uh, not specifically text, but poetry exchanges between various scholars. Um, so you'll have bits and pieces. Because before there was a common spoken language, they would often, you know, a, a conversation would be a brush conversation, you know, a bitan in Chinese, a done in Japanese. So there are massive of the quantities of these. Unfortunately, they're not; they haven't been used as much, largely because they're they're still in manuscript and they're they're you know written in um, uh, a very difficult hand to read. So, um, but. There is that. There's also, interestingly, I I read about this a few years back, you know, when, when Korean missions would come to the court in Beijing and Vietnamese missions would come to the court in Beijing, they would often meet and wait for months at a time before they could get an audience with some officials. And of course, they had no spoken language in common either. And they would exchange Chinese language poetry, um, uh, as a way to communicate, um, from a Western perspective, the whole idea of writing as a way to communicate is is, is alien. I mean, so it, you have to stretch your imagination a little bit. Uh, but this was the way it was done for many centuries in East Asia. Um, I think, you know, if Matthew and I lived to be 200 years, we would only begin to scratch the surface of all the material that's out there. Um I'm planning to live to be 200 (laughs) (laughs)
2: Right.
1: That's fascinating, though. I would be really curious to learn uh, what they talked about, what they wrote to each other about.
2: um, You asked about uh, some of the chapters in the book. Uh, The chapter by Rob Tuck um, uh, uh, touches on this poetic exchange. uh, In particular, he's looking at um, the... uh, Uh, During the early Meiji period, uh, some of the um, uh, Chinese uh, individuals who were in Meiji, Japan. And uh, what's interesting about uh, his, uh, there are many things that are interesting about the chapter, but one of the things that's interesting about the chapter is that uh, he focuses not on the famous diplomats uh, who uh, people... Know about Huang Shan and so forth, uh, who were there, but on more obscure uh, uh, Chinese figures who were in Japan teaching Chinese, for example, or were had somehow uh, figured out a way to uh, go and sell their calligraphy in uh, in Japan and so forth, um, and uh, and so the exchanges that take place in the newspapers in Japan at the time. Um, uh in addition to the kind of uh, direct uh brush talks that uh, Josh was uh mentioning so that's that's an um uh that's something that um uh you can you read about in in his chapter and i would just say that uh, the brush talk example uh, that uh, that Josh mentioned it's um uh we ha- may have a tendency to assume that um this was uh, you know for lack of a of something better for lack of uh, a preferred means of oral communication they had no choice but uh to uh communicate in the written form um but some uh of the individuals actually preferred uh the written form because that uh because for one thing they could have a record then of uh the conversation um and also this was this was uh part of you know, the idea of what a what a what an East Asian intellectual uh, should be.
0: And you have to, you know, you have to remember that um, at this time, even up till the end of the 19th century, Japanese were just as well educated. Elite Japanese were just as well educated in the Chinese classics as the people they were communicating with. So they could communicate at a level of discourse, um, that is very hard for us now to understand, even if we understand the language, because they would make, you know, just offhand references to an obscure phrase from some obscure classic. And the other person would, oh, yeah, of course, you know, that's what you mean. And um, now we look them up when we go to our massive volume, you know, 13 volume dictionaries. And eventually after three hours, we understand those two characters. But um, it was a wholly different style of education, um, th- you know, than, than we have now.
1: Fascinating. And this kind of leads to my next question, which is, um, so as time goes by, as we uh, come towards uh, the end of the 19th century, the the beginning of the 20th century, when this uh, shift of power, both cultural uh, power and I guess military power, so to speak, um, happened between Japan and China, Do we see any of the transitions um, or changes happening in the literary and cultural uh, exchanges happen uh, between Japan and China? Was there any differences in the flow of the knowledge or was there any um, genres of literary productions that was uh, being introduced more or less around the time?
0: Well, as we move into the, I'll start in Matthew, and then I'll let you know more about this than I probably. Obviously, as we move into the 20th century, there's far more exchanges. Japanese have long wanted to see China, but have been unable to do so, not just for political reasons, but It was dangerous you you know you think oh it's just a couple hundred miles away how hard is that but it's not it's not so easy this is before the advent of you know air travel or anything else but eventually people start coming in larger numbers and then tour groups and so on so there's more contact and um and then politics intrudes as it always does and as a rule messes everything up but uh and that happened in both china and japan um and, and that of course at the, there was a very simply put and this is uh, and, and I'm I'm not suggesting that this is the whole story the 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 hierarchy shifts from China um, um, being seen in some way as culturally superior to China to Japan to um, being Chinese now start flooding to Japan to learn about the, the brand, you know, the brave new world out there because the West becomes this third force. Um, and uh, in terms of, of, of literature and culture, maybe I should, maybe I should stop and let Matthew, if he has anything to add to that.
2: Well, I think um, uh, the one of the transitions that um, uh, is touched on in um, uh, in the volume uh, is uh, in the in the chapter by Michael Fascists. Uh There's a um, discussion of how, uh, whereas uh, traditional Semitic scholarship Kangaku had uh, had. In the early modern period, had aimed at elucidating universal truths and uh, fundamental principles applicable to uh, all uh, humankind. Um, he uh, uh, characterizes the shift that happens in uh, the modern emergence of sinology as a shift to. A kind of a more area studies uh, paradigm uh, about less searching for universal truths and more about the specific uh, civilization of understanding the the local civilization of China as a specific entity um, and uh, and that uh, shift is uh, is one that um, marks a real uh, uh, um, transition. Um, I think uh, you could see. Um, the roots of you know the, an interest in the specific local uh culture uh of uh, um you know chinese uh, contemporary society back in the edo uh period for sure um uh there's a there's a uh, emmanuel pastreish and others have talked about this this uh um uh, attention to uh, everyday life in china um uh, as as a as a major um uh, focus of attention in, in uh, early modern letters, um, uh, so it's not as though this this appears uh, out of nowhere. But uh, but it, I think that's that's one transition. One other thing that um, the uh, uh, we've talked a lot about um, uh, the uh, genre of, of poetry, but uh, the um, uh, in addition to poetry. Um, uh, There's also um, a a chapter in the book by Will Fleming uh, that looks at um, uh, literary uh, adaptation um, that is uh, inspired by uh, a a Chinese uh, source uh, text, uh, although um, uh, he he has an interesting. Uh, it's a, a work of uh, of prose, um, uh, sort of a, a ghost story. Um, but uh, he um, uh, has an interesting uh, uh, examination of um, uh, how texts that uh, were um, were not uh, reprinted in Japan. Um, nevertheless, the Chinese texts uh, like Liao, Liao Jiaji is the one he he looks at specifically. Um, nevertheless, had clear uh, uh, impact on Japanese letters, and so that's really uh, even if a text is not um, uh, reprinted. This goes to what Josh was saying earlier about you know this text that is in you know in, in a library. How you know the question may occur to someone: How much impact does it have? Well it could have a lot of impact uh, through uh, borrowing and, and uh, manuscript uh, circulation and uh, copying and so forth. Uh, so,
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I can talk about this forever, but I guess for the last question, um, I want to ask this last question on behalf of many of my students. So in the beginning of the volume, you mentioned that Sino-Japanese studies is gaining increasing attention. And yes, um, in many of our students, Especially undergraduate students who are just exposed to the Japanese language, when they learn about this uh, Sinosphere um, Sinitic literary tradition, they become very interested in this topic. They want to learn more about it. Some of them even want to go into graduate school to study further about this topic. But what... um, Well, it sounds... A bit scary for students, especially if you're a first uh, entry-level Japanese learner, to have to master both Chinese and Japanese in order to learn about their interactions in the past, not to mention in the early modern period when they uh, read and wrote in a completely different set of language. So. For those who are interested in this field, what are some of the necessary skills and how would you suggest um, students or anybody who, who are interested in this to practice these skills?
0: Willie, there, there's no shortcuts. <laughs> you have to learn the languages, right? Uh, Matthew, I don't think you would disagree. We, we both struggled for years. I don't know struggle is the right word. Slaved is more like it for years and years. And you can't fake it. You know, you can't just... You know, uh, and uh, but if you find the topic interesting and and of course, you know, just when you graduate, even when you get your Ph.D., your language learning doesn't end. It's a lifelong thing. You know, I, I, I started studying Chinese 52 years ago. I know I look much younger, but still, it's, uh, it's no seriously. And I feel like every time I open a Chinese book, uh, Japanese I started three years later, so forty nine years ago. Every time I open it, I, it's a, it's there's challenges. Uh, it's never going to be my native language. Um, uh, literary Chinese, you know, literary Sinitic is nobody's native language. Um, so it's, I don't, you know, students who are interested in it, and I say, look, this is a great field. It's really, really interesting. And there's lots to be done, um, but there's no, there's no cutting corners on this. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Matthew? Uh, yes, uh, I think
2: that's true that there, there is, there's no shortcut. Uh, but, um, and I think that it it does, uh, uh, it will serve you well to uh, invest the time at, at an early age, uh, in uh, <laughs> in um, uh, you know learning learning languages for sure, um, but at the same time, I would uh, I would say that uh, even if uh, you discover somewhere along the, on the way that you you need some skill that you you didn't have uh, uh, you didn't acquire earlier you can always acquire that uh, you know uh, along the way uh, so in my uh, in my case uh, when I was um, in grad school in the 90s it was still, was not at all common for people to uh, to learn um, how to read uh, uh, cursive texts. Uh, paleography was not something that was taught in um, uh, in graduate school, but that is something that is increasingly uh, common these days. Uh, and so, you know, it's something that you can. There, are, there are all kinds of tools that are available for uh, people to acquire that later. So it's you don't need to front load everything, uh, but. Uh, but uh, it it is investment that will pay off. Uh-huh.
1: Indeed, I completely agree. And I guess, in a sense, this is quite like uh, in the nineteenth century when Japanese intellectuals, after they became adults, they, well, uh, some of them, um, merchants, for instance, they they, they learned to write, to to brush talk, in in literary um, style. So that's, yeah. Yeah, well, um, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and this uh, volume, absolutely interesting, um, fascinating. Thank you so much for working on this volume.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And for our listeners to read more about the shared literary practices of early modern Japan, China, make sure to check out this book, uh, Sino-Japanese Reflections, Literary and Cultural Interactions Between China and Japan in Early Modernity by uh, Matthew Frehley and Joshua Fogo. This is Yi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon.